Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 22. We're reading verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Customarily, I would pray right there and then begin the sermon. Today, I don't have to do that. So I'm very grateful to my friend Richard Pratt, uh, who was my professor and teacher in seminary and has been an ongoing friend of this congregation for many years as well. He remembers going over and preaching across the street in the old sanctuary, and so that dates him seriously uh, <laughs> into the late 80s and early 90s. But uh, we're glad to welcome Richard uh, to preach to us this morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be with you, and I've seen a number of you that I have known from the past, but I also see a number of you, most of you, in fact, that I've never met before. That's a good sign, you know. Yeah, that's a good sign. But I'm glad to be speaking to you this morning from the book of Matthew in chapter 22 on the greatest commandment. Maybe you have played this game. It's often called On a Deserted Island. You ever heard that game before? Basically, usually what happens is, at least as I've seen it, is you have a panel of people, maybe five or six that are set up on the stage, and the leader of the group will say, okay, you're going to spend the next month on a deserted island. And what you have to do right now is write down the 10 things you want to take with you. So, of course, everybody jots down 10 things. That's not that hard a thing to do. But after a few moments go by, then the leader of the group says, now you have to choose five out of those ten. Well, that's not so hard because people scratch off things like my favorite candy, an extra pair of shoes, a raincoat. Okay, so now I'm down to five. But I remember one time because the next question or the next direction is, now cut those down to two or three. All right, that's really hard to do. But then finally, at the end, of course, cut it all down to one. What's the one thing you would take with you if you had to spend a month on a deserted island? Now, you can imagine, can't you, that if you can get it down to one, you've arrived at something that's very, very important to you. The one thing that you would have with you for a month on a deserted island. That will reveal your priorities in life, won't it? And that's the point of the game, is for everybody to get to the point where they're identifying what's the most important thing to you in all of your life. But I remember the one time I saw that game played, when they got down to the last question, the person that was sitting on that end of the table just threw his hands up and says, I quit. I can't get it down to just one thing. The only thing I can do is get it down to two. And in many ways, that's the game that the Pharisees were playing with Jesus in the passage that we just read. They were saying to him, we want you to get this whole religion thing down to one command. One, and one only. And so Jesus responded to them, 
by telling them what he considered to be the most important commandment in all of the Bible, the most important rule for life for anybody that wants to have a good life and wants to have a life that's pleasing to God. But Jesus threw his hands up in this passage, didn't he? Just like that young man did. And he said, I just can't get it down to one. I can only get it down to two. You know, religion is a complicated thing. Maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself very religious or a person of faith or a person that concerns himself or herself with God very much. But if you do it all, if you think about such things at all, you know, it's kind of complicated and hard to get it all down to a couple of things. Certainly very hard to get it all down to just one thing that could register as the most important element of your faith, the most important directive of your life, the most important principle by which you're going to live in relation to God and to others around you. And so we can all sympathize with Jesus as he's faced with that question, what's the number one? What's the number one? And he says, I just can't do it. The best I can do is to come up with two. But in reality, as Jesus gets it down to two, he gets it down to the bottom line. And it's a bottom line that all of us need to come to grips with. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what you believe or what you don't believe, what Jesus said in this passage is of utter importance to every single person that lives on this planet. What's the greatest commandment? Now, when Jesus responded, it really wasn't hard for him because given who he was, he was a rabbi after all, and he knew the Bible, the Old Testament, as we call it today. He knew that book, and he had been taught even as a child. What is the biggest of them all, the most important to what part of the Bible to quote? He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Love the Lord your God. In fact, that's what he had been taught by his own teachers. As he would go to synagogue or go to temple, he had learned that that's the right answer to the question. And indeed, it is the right answer to the question. What's the most important thing for you to consider and for me to consider? Love God with everything you've got. Now, in Jesus' day, people used the word love a lot like we use it today. Use it in all kinds of different ways to describe all kinds of affections and all kinds of feelings that we have. You know we do that. I love pizza. I love football. I love her. I love him. I love church. I love my kids. But when Jesus refers to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, where it talks about love for God, if you take a look back at that Old Testament book, you discover that this word love was used in a very special way. It was actually, in the world of the Bible, a political term. Now, this is a military town. Did you know that? Okay, good. A lot of you probably work for the military if you're not in the military. And it used to be, I don't hear it said very much anymore, but it used to be said a lot among people who worked for or were in the military. They would say, we do this because we love our country. We love our country. And that's the way that in the old world of the Bible, 
kings would talk to their subjects. They would not say to them simply, I want you to obey me or I want you to do what I want you to do. What they would say to their subjects in their kingdom was this. They would say, I want you to love me. And when they said those words, they had something a lot like what we have in mind when we speak not of loving pizza or loving our husbands or our wives or loving our children or loving football, but rather they had in mind something like what we mean when we say, I love my country. And this is what they meant when they said to their people, I want you to love me. Look at all the things I have done for you. Look at how generous as your king I have been to you. Look at how I protect you. Look at how I provide for you. Look at how I give you food, how I give you law, how I give you order, how I take care of you, how your problems and your needs are met because I am your king. And because I've been such a good king to you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love me. I want you to have gratitude to me. I want you to be loyal to me, not because I'm forcing you to, not because I'm going to drive you down to the ground if you don't, but rather because you realize all the great things I've done for you. And so when God in the Old Testament says to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, the passage that Jesus is quoting here, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's what God was saying to his people. Look at me. I am your king, and because of all the good things that I've done for you in bringing you up out of Egypt, in taking care of you, in protecting you, in giving you the food that you eat, in giving you the life that you have, every good thing you have in your life, in fact, belongs to you because I've given it to you. Now, in recognition of that, what I want you to do is I want your hearts to be filled with so much gratitude and so much love for me that it overwhelms you and that it motivates you throughout all of your life. You know, Jesus himself lived that way. If ever you want an image or an example of someone who actually did have that kind of gratitude to God, that kind of loyal love for God, that kind of honor for God, it would have to be Jesus. But how do you see that Jesus had that much, that kind of love for God. It's because of the sacrifices that he made throughout his whole life and how he made those sacrifices willingly, even joyfully, because he loved God that much. You know, we live in a day today where there are people across a spectrum, and you meet them every day. If you go out to work, in your neighborhood, in your club, your friendships, whatever they may be, you find people that have all kinds of different religious beliefs. In fact, we could create the spectrum here. We have today, it is a common term now, a popular term. We have people who will call themselves boldly anti-theists, that we are not just atheists, we are actually against the idea of God. We hate that idea. We're anti-theist. And if you move a little bit off of that, you might find people who say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe there is a God. And if you move to the side of that a little bit, you'll find people who say, 
I'm agnostic. I'm just not really sure whether there is a God or not. But then you'll find all kinds of people today who say, yeah, I love God. I love everything. And God's among those things that I love. And they, generally speaking, will have in that a feeling of, well, Jesus is all right with me. I like him okay. But you see, the test of love of God is not, do you feel okay about God? Do you really just sort of think, yeah, okay, I'm not against him, I'm not an anti-theist, and I'm not an atheist, and I'm not an agnostic, I, I kind of believe there's a God, and I kind of like him. Yeah, it makes me feel good to think about him. But that's not the test, you see. The test for what it means to love God is the same test that Jesus himself passed. And that is, do you realize how much God has done for you and how much God is doing for you that your heart is filled with gratitude and with loyalty and devotion to God, like your heart might be filled with appreciation, love, and devotion, even to your own country. You see, when God is your king, life is not convenient. When God is your king, as he claims, even in this passage, life is not convenient for you. You know that's true. I mean, think about human kings. Why is it that we don't have human kings in this country? Why would you resist someone ruling as the king of the state of Florida? Why would you stand opposed to such a thing as that? You know as well as I do why. It's because if someone is a king, a human king, then their agenda, they have weird ideas, that they think their agenda is more important than yours. That they think that their honor is more important than your honor. That they think that somehow you ought to be happy to serve them. In fact, human kings in history have been bizarre in that they actually believe that their subjects ought to be willing not simply to live for them, but actually willing to die for them. And when you have people around you like that, it's not convenient. And I think that tells us something. If your faith has become something that's convenient to you, if your Christian faith has become something that just fits nicely with who you are, and it really never challenges you to change. It never really challenges you to do something that might seem radical to you or something that would be terribly inconvenient for you to do. If that's where your faith has come, then maybe, just maybe, you still don't know what it means to say that God is your king who deserves your loyal love. And did you see where Jesus says that love resides? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It resides deep inside of you.
to love God the way that Jesus did, to love God with loyal devotion and gratitude requires a change of heart. As deep as you can dig down inside of yourself, that's what needs to change. So maybe in a group like this, surely there's someone here today who has never had that kind of change of heart, a radical change from deep within. That change can come to you. It can be yours. If you can hear what Jesus is saying today and you can say, you know, I would like to live for God that way. I'd like to love him that way. It takes a change of heart, but that change of heart can come. All you have to do is come to Jesus. All you have to do is surrender to Him. All you have to do is give yourself to Him, and He will change you. But even for the rest of us here, who claim to be followers of Jesus, isn't it true that it's ever so easy for us to lose sight of how deeply we are to be in love with God? And isn't it easy for us to get to the point that love for God, love for Jesus, love for the things of our faith can get down to where it's just like you love pizza? The test is whether or not your faith has become convenient. And the way is to have a change of heart. When Jesus said those words to the lawyer who was questioning him, who was testing him, what's the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment is to love God. That was no surprise. Most of the Jews living in Palestine at that time would have responded just like Jesus did. You've all heard the famous line that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, just before this verse that Jesus quotes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. You see, it was not a surprise when Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. But the reality is, that while the lawyer asked for only one thing, Jesus could not keep his mouth shut. He threw his hands up and he said, I just can't get it down to one. And he said this, and the second one, the second greatest commandment, number two, is very much like the first one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Number two. Now, Jesus clearly says that because our loyalties and our devotion are to be to God first, all other loves, all other loyalties, all other devotion is to be at least second at best. And so, if in the course of life we find ourselves having to choose between love for God and love for neighbor, well, then we know what to choose, number one, not number two. But in a normal course of life, Jesus is telling us, you don't have to make that choice. In fact, number one and number two 
go together. Think about it this way. If you've ever watched a marathon, and if you've ever been at the finish line of a marathon, you know that quite often in a marathon, the first person crosses the finish line way ahead of number two, you know, the Kenyan who makes it in first. He may be a block, he may be a block and a half, he may be two blocks ahead of number two. That's what we would call a distant second. In high school, my daughter played on the volleyball team of her high school, and they were in the finish, the runoffs for the state championship one year, and they had done very well all through the season, except that in that last game, that championship game for the state of Florida and their division, they were so nervous that the opposing team won the first toss and got the first serve, and they served the ball, and our team, my daughter's team, just stood there and watched the ball come across and hit the floor. They were frozen. Shake it off, shake it off, shake it off. Well, second serve happened again. Third serve, it happened again. That's the way the game was. They hardly returned the ball the whole time. Now, they were number two in the state of Florida, but I can tell you something, they were a very distant number two, like a marathon runner. But now what Jesus is telling us here in this passage is this. Number one and number two, it's not like a marathon, it's not like my daughter's volleyball team, a distant second, not at all. On the contrary, it's a lot more like a sprint. And if you've ever been at the finish line, on a sprint, then you know that very often the only way to tell who's number one and who's number two is what we call a photo finish. You have to take a snapshot of it. And the judges say, wait a minute, we're not really sure who won, who stuck their chest out the furthest, who leaned forward, who touched that wire first. So they have to look at the photograph. And when they look, they can tell, okay, that person is the winner, number one. But you know, in a photo finish... If you have number one in the frame, you have number two in the frame as well. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage. If you have love for God, loyal devotion, a heart of gratitude that will live even inconveniently in service to God, that's great, but you need to understand something. If you have that in the picture, there's something else in the picture too. And it's love for your neighbor. That was a surprise to the people who are listening to Jesus that day. Because that passage is one of these hidden passages. In fact, I would be surprised to find if more than five of you today even know where that passage is in the Old Testament, because it's a quote from the Old Testament too. It's from your favorite book in the whole Bible, Leviticus. And it's buried inside of things like, don't cut your beard. Don't wear the wrong clothes. Don't stand on the left side of the street, stand on the right side of the street. That's the American version anyway. 
It's buried among all kinds of obscure little rules that you run into if you were ever to pick up the book of Leviticus. It's right in there. Oh, yeah, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. But the obscurity of that verse in the Old Testament highlights the fact that Jesus chose that one. And he said, it's a photo finish, number two. Now, in American culture, right now, today, we are experiencing, in my lifetime, probably the most polarized period of American existence, where American people are so angry with each other over cultural and political things that it is just astonishing. It's very difficult, isn't it, to sit in a public place and have a conversation about things, even with a friend, because you're afraid of what the person in the table next to you may be overhearing, and you may offend them, and they may be angry with you, and the next thing you know, you have a big fight right there in the middle of the restaurant. So you whisper. It's very difficult even to talk about the television show you watched last night, or to talk about the presidential debate, until you have somebody pull out their wallet and say, well, let me tell you who I am and what I believe, and I agree with you on everything. Now let's talk about it. Because there's so much anger, so much polarization, so much that we can hardly have conversations with each other. And so, even followers of Jesus in the name of being true, in the name of being faithful, and often even in the name of loving God, will find it very natural. They'll find it very normal. In fact, very easy. And they can justify it all day long that rather than love their neighbor, they hate their neighbor. I don't know what it's like in your neighborhood, but I can tell you about my neighborhood. There is not anywhere within one block of my home a family that looks like my family, that talks like my family, that would have the political and social orientation that my family has, and even the religious orientation that my family has. Not one. Is that the way it is for you in your neighborhood? Is that the way it is for you at work? Is that the way it is when you go to the soccer game now? And when you have that kind of life, when you have that kind of existence in this country today where things are so polarized, it's very easy for you simply to say, you know, the only way I'm going to make it through this day is if I ignore those people, if I push them aside, if I don't let them into my life. In my neighborhood... You can tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever by the fact that the Christians will wave at you while they're hitting the garage door button. Because we all want to get inside as fast as we can so we don't have to deal with each other. Hatred for neighbor. That would be the extreme, wouldn't it? But keep in mind that when one of these lawyers... Ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, you're talking about loving your neighbor. 
Who is my neighbor? Jesus did not reply, Well, it's the person who agrees with you. When that lawyer asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus did not say, Well, your neighbor that you're supposed to love is the one who is like you, who speaks the same language as you do, who dresses like you, who has the same priorities in life as you do, who has the same religious and faith commitments that you do. That's your neighbor. That's not what Jesus said. Do you remember the story that Jesus told to illustrate what it meant to say to love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And his answer was, let me tell you about the good Samaritan. The Samaritan. The one despised and the one who despised. And yet, when he walked down the road, he helped the one who was different from him. He served the one at great sacrifice who was just, in many respects, the opposite of him. And so when Jesus tells us that the photo finish number two is love your neighbor, he's telling us something that is terribly inconvenient again. If loving God is inconvenient, and it is, loving your neighbor is also inconvenient. Don't you wish, don't you wish that you were surrounded by people who agree with you all the time? Don't you wish that your husband would agree with you all the time? Your wife would agree with you all the time? Don't you wish that your children would just do what you tell them to do? Don't you wish that the people you worked with would be right on the same line as you are? Well, the reality is, it's not that way. And this is why love for our neighbors is so very inconvenient. But think of Jesus. Think of Jesus and how he lived. It's clear enough, isn't it? that Jesus loved God, he loved his heavenly Father, his heart overflowed with gratitude and loyal service to God. Happy to do this for you, God, because you have given me so much. But isn't it also true that when you read the stories about Jesus, that you discover how much he loved people? And isn't it true that when you think about the way Jesus treats you, how patient He is with you and me, how kind He is to you and me, how long-suffering He is to you and to me, isn't it evident how much He loves us? Why was that such a high priority for Jesus? 
is because he understood something. That out of all the creatures in this world, whether it be this animal or that animal or whatever it may be, out of all the creatures that he made, even the angels, there was one creature whom God honored more than any other. There is one creature that God cared more about than any other. And who was that? What creature was that? The human race. Human beings. That person sitting next to you right now. There is no creature in God's eyes more greatly honored than the ones who are sitting here in this room. And if this is why Jesus gave himself sacrificially in love for others, then surely we who follow him must do the same. If we were to list off all the commands that are in the Bible, it'd be a very long list, wouldn't it? I mean, you've been going through the Ten Commandments, and that's the short list, the short ten, top ten. There it is. But it's hard even to remember the top ten, much less the list of the thousands and thousands and thousands of commands that are in the Bible. And so, it's so important for all of us with the limitations that we have, the inability to remember, even remember, much less obey the thousands of commands, and the inability of many of us even to recite the top ten, is ever so important to get it down to something that you and I can remember. Something that is deep down inside of us that motivates us no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the particularities are, no matter what challenge we face at this moment or that moment, this motivating, the motivating principles that can get us through so that we can live a good life and a life that's honoring to God. How do we do that? It's by remembering what Jesus said in this passage. When you get right down to it, there are two things that you want to have with you when you're on that deserted island. Two things. Love for God and love for neighbor. And if those can reside deep within you, then you will be able to face the countless choices you have to make every day in a way that pleases God. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we delight in you and we honor you for the fact that you did not just talk these things, but that you lived these things. Holy Spirit, we confess to you that we cannot do even these two simple commandments. We cannot perform them. We cannot live them. 
in our own power and our own strength. And so we turn to You, Holy Spirit, and we ask You, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, to live in us and to raise us to newness of life. And may You come to us, fill us, and equip us to love our neighbors and to love You. Amen.